0: If you'd turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, I will read the Lord's Prayer one more time, and let's pray it together. Uh, let's read it together and say it out loud together, really as a prayer uh, directed towards God. I'll read the first four words, which are pray then like this, and then we'll read the rest of the prayer uh, together. Pray then like this. Our verse will be verse 12, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I want to begin uh, this morning by reminding you of what you already know. The greatest difficulty in the whole Christian life is dealing with sin. There's nothing harder in the whole Christian life than continually waking up every morning and going to bed each night with an active battle against sin in our lives. It's amazing. Uh, Christians can be extremely happy in the worst situations. You think about King David. He was singing psalms as he ran from King Saul from one cave to the next. He was uh, able to praise God as he had to fight lions and bears with his bare hands. Christians can find joy in the hardest situations. But if sin enters our lives and sin gets a foothold, there's really nothing but dark clouds and gloom in our soul. I think about the way uh, David described the state of his own heart uh, after the time where he murdered and committed adultery and lied to cover it up. He says in Psalm 32, when he's thinking about that time, he describes the state of his soul during that time. And he says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." You know, it might serve us to even think a little bit about what kind of effect sin has on our lives. It's interesting, every Christian would admit to you, I'm a sinner, but rarely do we sort of dissect what it looks like and what it feels like and what the experience of being a sinner really is. One of the things that we face when we're sinners is we feel a sense of shame. Sin almost automatically brings a sense of shame. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, they immediately covered themselves, aware that this new reality entered the world, that they weren't just people who could be out in the open, but they were people who had something to be ashamed of. And we might hide that from folks, but if you look someone long enough in the eye, or You get caught in the wrong conversation that leads you down a path where you've gotta face something about your life. Each of us are aware of this deep sense of shame that we carry around because of our sin. On top of shame when it comes to sin, there's also this callousness that comes into our hearts because of sin. One of the great ironies of the Christian life is that you're sensitized to sin The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We're all of a sudden alert to sin in ways that we weren't before and you're simultaneously aware of how unsensitive you are to sin. The Bible describes sin as searing the conscience, as making hearts hard. Maybe we can even identify with that woman who had an abortion and who said, I feel guilty for not feeling guilty. Because many of us have things in our lives that we we know are wrong, we know aren't right, we know our sin. And part of the grief of sin is that you actually do care and don't care enough about the reality of sin in your life. You know what I'm talking about? So there's shame, there's a hardening of the conscience that can come into our lives when we battle against sin. And on top of that, when you start to go down a path of sin, you can also begin to throw caution to the wind. You get a sense of hopelessness. I'm never gonna change. I can't quit. This is just the way I am. My parents were like this, I'm like this, my family's like this. I've tried to stop, it never works. And there's this sense that we're never, ever going to be able to change anything in our lives. And when that enters your soul, you know what happens? Then you just begin to give yourself to it. I mean, if I can't win, why fight? And so we begin to throw ourselves into the very things that we hate. So Christians are aroused, they have a sensitivity to sin, they have a new heart that's tender to sin, but then they discover they can't just instantly stop. The Apostle James says we all stumble in many ways. Paul talks about how we have a battle of the spirit against the flesh. Every single one of us sins, and when we do sin, uh, yeah, we might dress up nice on Sunday, but we're wrestling with feelings of shame, feelings of callousness, feelings of fear. I think I quoted it recently, but I just love that Andrew Peterson line. It's the fear that I'll fall just one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. And So we begin to have fear that certainly someone who sins as much as I do can't ever really change. And if I can't ever really change, then why fight so hard? You know, very often when you meet people who've just left the Christian faith, what do they testify to? Christians all think that their non-Christian friends who've just become non-Christians, who've left the Christian faith, are going to be miserable. But no, that's not usually what happens. Usually people right after they leave the faith have a feeling of relief. And they have a feeling of relief because they had gotten so down, never being able to get victory. That giving up the fight actually produces a sense of relief that now I'm not even fighting anymore. I was sick and tired of getting beat up and losing to sin. And so sin produces shame, it produces callousness, produces fear, produces a hopelessness produces despair, and then we throw caution to the wind, and it produces more sin, which makes the cycle more violent and more ferocious and more destructive in our lives. And what I find just stunning about the Lord's prayer is that Jesus knew that was going to be my experience. Jesus knew that after I grabbed a hold of him to be my savior, after I ran away from my sin and trusted Christ's death on the cross to save me, he knew I would have an ongoing battle with sin. And he got out ahead of me like a good leader and said, now here's the prayer you're going to pray when you're sinning. Here's the prayer you're going to pray when you fall. Instead of sinning and just throwing yourself into bitterness, it's easy to get mad at other people's sin when you're feeling sinful, isn't it? It's one of the greatest reliefs from feelings of sinfulness, just get mad at other people. So you might be tempted to be bitter when you fall into sin, you might be tempted towards self-righteousness, just developing a little standard that's kind of easy to keep when you fall into sin. You might just fall into licentiousness. Who cares, I'll just give myself to sin. Jesus gets out ahead of us and says, I'm gonna meet you with something different. Here's what I want you to ask for when you sin. I want you to ask me to forgive you. I want you to come before me when you're full of shame, in doubt, in despair, in rebellion, in callousness, when you're filled with condemnation and hopelessness and just a a sense of despair. This will never change, and these relationships I'm in where we're sinning against each other, they will never be able to get any better. I want you to come to me about as often as you come to me for daily bread, and I want you to ask me. forgiveness. That's the gospel, beloved. That is the gospel that although we are sinners, we can go to God and ask him to forgive us, and he will. And all of the shame and all of the condemnation and all of the hopelessness gets wiped away. I wonder if you've ever thought much about this word Forgiveness. This word, forgiveness. You ever defined that? The word here, translated forgiveness, literally means to cancel, to send away, to remit. And I love that the image here used for sin is the word debt. Have you noticed that? It says, forgive us our debts as we uh, forgive our debtors. And you might think, oh, this is a prayer about money. But it's not a prayer about money at all. When Jesus speaks about forgiveness in the gospels, he uses three synonymous terms. Three terms that basically mean the same thing. They just each give us a different angle. The one term is transgression. The other term is sin. And the term in front of us is debt. Let me show you how those are used just to make sure we know what we're talking about here. If you just go down to verses 14 and 15, you'll see that Jesus is clearly talking about the same thing. He's talking about forgiveness. This passage we're in right now, verse 12, forgive us our debts, is the only portion of the Lord's Prayer that gets later commentary. Gets a little filling out. And it gets it just down in verses 14 and 15. So we're pray, forgive us our debts, and then you drop down to verse 14 and 15, and you see we're on the same topic, but the word debt doesn't come up. A synonymous term, a term that means the same thing, comes up. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So debt and trespasses basically mean the same thing. They have the same idea of how we offend God. But one other verse that kind of brings this together and shows these words kind of all mean the same thing would come to us from the other time we get the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke. Listen to this and see if you catch it. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus teaches us to pray, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Did you catch that? In Matthew, it's forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Luke, same idea, different words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. What's going on here? What's going on here is that the primary thing that brings a break in our relationship with God, the the worst thing about sin is that sin brings a break in our relationship with God and it does it because of what it is. If we wanted to define sin, that word, it's the idea of missing the mark from God's standards. If we wanted to define trespass, It's the idea of stepping over the line, going beyond God's word, stepping out of bounds. And debt brings up one very important emphasis in our offenses against God. A debt is where we owed something, we owed God our allegiance, we owed God our obedience, and now there's a debt to be paid. We didn't pay what we owed, And now God owes us his displeasure, his wrath, and his anger. This is what makes sin so brutal for the Christian. What makes sin so brutal for the Christian is we've been given hearts that love God. We've got hearts that want to please God, but we sin. We do what he doesn't want us to do. We fall short of what he wants us to be. We trespass what he wants us to do, and we incur a debt where we should have done this, but now we're actually owed his anger, his displeasure, and his wrath. And Jesus says to us, hey listen, you're gonna need three square meals a day, so I want you to come to me and ask for your daily bread, and just as much on the regular, I want you to ask me to forgive your sins. Which means that whatever you've done that's displeasing to God, whether it's sexual or financial or relational, whether it involves your family or your job, whether it's gonna wind you up on the front page of the newspaper, or it's gonna land you just ashamed before the people you know, or just shamed before God's face, he wants to wipe it away. He wants to cleanse it. He wants to wash it away. He wants to cancel it. Now, President Biden tried to do this with student loans. And it's good that we use the image of financial debt, because that's what we're being talked about here. President Biden tried to say, hey, everyone who's got a student loan, we're going to forgive tens of thousands of dollars of that. And it would have worked except for the Supreme Court decided that the president wasn't allowed to do that. I don't care what your opinion on this for a second, because I have my own opinion. But you've got to admit, if you got student loans, that would have been pretty sweet. I mean, come on, that would have been, that's a good day right there. They're they're just gone. You tell me you don't have a pep in your step that day? Okay, I know you may be grieving for the overall state of the American government if that happened, but if your student loans were gone, okay, you'd be a happy camper. But there was a lack of authority. There was a lack of authority. The president cannot unilaterally dismiss money you owe to other people. But with God, there is no Supreme Court over him that he's accountable to. God does not need checks and balances. He didn't walk up to him. would you check my work? Is this good? No, God has the ultimate authority and the ability to forgive sins. In fact, this is one of the illustrations Jesus uses of his divinity, do you remember this? In Mark's Gospel, there's a man who is, a, who is, a, who is a paralyzed, and they lower him down into the roof, and they say, Lord, heal him, heal him, heal him from his paralysis, and what does Jesus do? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone's like, well, we wanted him healed. And Jesus says, what's easier to do? Forgive him his sins? or heal them. They're both things only God can do. And so he says, to show you my authority, why don't you get up and walk? And the guy gets up and walks, showing that Jesus has the power not only to heal the sick, but to forgive sins. But when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, God actually does have a problem. Not an authority problem. There's no authority problem. God can pronounce someone forgiven. With God, the problem is not one of authority. It's one of morality. The question is how can it be right for God to forgive sins? You ever thought about that? I mean, what if you knew a judge And this judge was in the habit of being so merciful and gracious that he let people off for their crimes. Maybe you had a child who was abused. And the abuser winds up in this judge's courtroom. And the judge says, I just i love to forgive, it's my thing. I ran on that platform, it's been winning me elections ever since. And this child abuser is forgiven. What's the problem there? What's the problem is that justice has not been served. The judge just became a criminal. The judge who's charged with upholding the law just violated the law. And for God, the God of the universe, to look down at people like us and to get down into all the secrets of your life and to see all the immorality, all the deceit, all the things that make you feel callous and ashamed and hopeful in despair, and for God to say, it's good, would make God the devil himself. And so when God tackles the issue of forgiveness... He does not do it in a way that circumvents justice. He does not do it in a way that perverts justice. God handles our forgiveness in a way that upholds justice. Now I just want to read you a bunch of verses to show you this because it is so encouraging to see. Our God is a God who forgives us while upholding justice. Listen to Ephesians chapter one. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. How did our trespasses get forgiven? It wasn't that God swept them under the rug of the universe, it's that justice was served through the blood of Christ. We're singing power in the blood, power in the blood. There's wonder-working power in the blood. And the wonder-working power is this, that all the legal demands of God's law that would condemn me and destroy me and send me straight to hell have been satisfied in that Christ's blood was shed for my sins or my favorite. In Colossians chapter 2, it speaks of God having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just imagine that. Before God's law, there is a list of all your sins. Every place you've broken God's law, every place you've had a minor or a major infraction, every place where you've lusted, cheated, lied, stolen, worshiped another God, God is keeping lists, he is naming names, he knows every single thing you have ever done. Sometimes you'll hear preachers talk about what would happen if there was a movie of your life and everybody watched it, wouldn't you be ashamed? That's the least of your worries. It's that every single thing we've ever done has been before the eyes of God, always. He's seen it all, the cheap excuses, the vile passions, the selfish grabbing, the lustful hearts. He's watched every single moment of it and he's never missed a beat and he's not sitting there going, ah, kids will be kids. He has purer eyes than to behold evil. And before your law, before God's law, there is a record of all your sins. And he can't crumple it up and throw it in the garbage or burn it and hope no one notices or throw it in a shredder and hope no one ever reads it. That would be to violate his justice. And so it says in Colossians chapter 2, he has forgiven us all our transgressions. How? By canceling the record of debt. There was a record of your sins, a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, demanding your life, demanding your death, demanding your blood. It stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In the death of Christ, every single one of our sins was paid for. And it's gone. Now, if the New Testament gives us the logic of forgiveness, you were guilty. You deserve to die. Christ paid that death penalty. And now in justice, God can forgive you because all your debts have been paid by Christ. If the New Testament gives us the logic of forgiveness, the Old Testament gives us the poetry. The Old Testament gives us the poetry. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions for us. And I heard a preacher say it this way one time. If you're on the North Pole, every step you take south, gets you a little closer to the south pole. But if you're going east, west just keeps moving away. You can go as close as you want, but it just keeps running away from you. And you can turn back around and try to go east, but west will run away from you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. The blood of Christ is sufficient to utterly eliminate the fruit and the guilt of sin from your life. No matter what degree of shame, callousness, despair, hopelessness, you feel when you go before God, all of your sins are gone. Jeremiah 31, 34, you think, you think about a God who knows everything, deciding this is the best way to describe himself. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I'll tell you what, if you're walking around feeling ashamed all the time, it's not because you're so sensitive to the Holy Spirit. If you're walking around despairing over your sin all the time, it's not because you're so tender to God's Word. Because God's Word not only exposes the sin, but it exposes the Savior who takes them away. And He reminds you that God will remember your sins no more. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. How much can I hold on to these? How much can I meditate on these? How much can I mull over these? You can't be godlier than God. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I love that old gospel song, in the sea of God's forgetfulness. That's good enough for me. Praise God. My sins are gone. Now, I'm gonna raise one, little more, one more little question and give you a story and then I'm gonna sit down. If our sins, our transgressions, our spiritual debts are so thoroughly gone that they're in the sea of God's forgetfulness, that they're as far as the east is from the west, that they are canceled, that they're wiped away, why are we praying about them on a daily basis? does that strike anyone else as strange? I mean, they're gone. And yet we're told here, if we take our lead from give us this day our daily bread, we're basically on a daily basis praying, forgive us again. The New Testament keeps saying they have been forgiven. Little children, I write to you because you, your sins have been forgiven. And yet, we're being instructed to daily ask God to forgive us our sins. Well, I could give you a theological answer for why that's the case, but I got a story for you. And the story comes to us from John chapter 13, and it just illustrates this principle marvelously. You may remember that Peter, the apostle Peter... Uh, had the spiritual gift of being able to put his foot in his mouth two ways at, one at a time, at the same time. If you've ever thought you couldn't leave a legacy as a loser, let Peter encourage you. <laughs> you can fall on your face and people can be encouraged 2,000 years later by your life. Don't ever let anyone tell you you're not leaving a legacy. So here's the apostle Peter and uh, Jesus is washing feet. Yes, and Peter by this time has realized, this is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. Yes, and he's watching Jesus wrap a towel around his waist and take up the place of a servant, washing dirt and dung off people's feet. Yes, Peter looks at that and he goes, you're not washing my feet. Yes, you're Gonna be godlier than God, that Peter. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you got nothing to do with me. I wash all my people's feet. I'm the Lord and the servant of all my people. You want me? You gotta have your feet washed. Now here's what Peter's so good at doing. If you can't mess it up one way, why not mess it up another way? And so Peter then says, then not my feet, but my whole body. Peter's going to be radical. Peter's going to be sold out. Peter's going to be on fire for Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you're doing foot washing, but I'm going to be godlier than God right here. And I'm going to have you wash my whole body. If we're doing clean, I'm going to be the cleanest. And Jesus makes this comment that is so relevant to what we're talking about right now when we talk about how we can be forgiven 100% and continually need to ask for forgiveness. Jesus says to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean. He gives us this amazing illustration that really fleshes out what the rest of the New Testament makes clear that the Christian once cleansed is always cleansed. We live in a state of grace. We have been justified by faith and there is grace in which we now stand. We have been forgiven. And that forgiven doesn't come in some days and leave us other days. It's not willy-nilly. It's not up and down. You don't sin one moment and, whoops, I was out of the grace of God, and then do good one moment, oh, I'm in the grace of God. This is not that kind of a relationship. The Christian is always clean. But you walk through this life, you're going to get your feet dirty there's gonna be some peripheral dirt that gets on you. It doesn't get to the core of you. You've been made new, but you are going to have some exposure to sin in this life. But isn't this amazing? How does God regard the worst sins of the Christian? Adultery, going to prostitutes, lying, lusting, Envying, coveting, bitterness, anger, wrath, malice. It's just a little dirt on your feet. The core of you has already been cleansed. And when you go to Jesus and you say to him, as a Christian, forgive us our debts, he wipes it right away. Now listen to me. You and I are tempted to descend into shame and callousness and despair. We are tempted to want to pull back from people or if we're going to come out with people, we're going to come out self-righteous or bitter or hot or angry because we have this lingering sense of our own guilt. But the state of the Christian is this. Every single Christian has been forgiven of all of their sins. No matter how shameful they are, they are gone, they are nailed to that tree, and you are freed. I remember one time getting down on my knees to ask God to forgive me for a particular sin in my life. I can't even remember what it was, or I'd tell you, but I I got down and asked God to forgive me, and when I was done, I thought to myself, now what do I do? And I remember this amazing reality dawning on my mind, and it was this, nothing, Just worship, just thank God, it's all been done. No atonement, no I gotta read 17 chapters later today. Just I'm forgiven. That's where you live, believer. And if you've fallen into sin, or when you daily struggle with sin, whether it's heinous or minor, You need to know that the same God who cleaned you completely is always willing to wash your feet off. He's always willing to forgive your sins. What an amazing thing. You would think, wouldn't you, this seems like a bad strategy, right? How do I get them not to sin? Well, tell them in advance to ask me to forgive them. seems kind of dangerous, doesn't it? I mean, what if you said to someone, no matter what you do, I'll forgive you. Our instinct is to think, oh, that'll make a person sin more. The psalmist says there is forgiveness with you so that you might be feared. When you realize God will forgive you no matter what, it actually creates in you more reverence, not less. If you hearing that God will forgive you no matter what makes you want to go sin more, you're not even born again. But if you hear that no matter what you do, God will forgive you makes you so thankful that he will always be there to forgive, to wash your feet and to take you all the way home to heaven clean, you have grace you can trust. And it can begin to melt away all the bitterness, all the anger, all the harshness, all the unforgiveness there may be for other people. So, I encourage you, take this prayer to God with your sins. Forgive us our debts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, we pray to you and ask you that you would make us a people who see our sins, acknowledge our sins, and run to you with our sins, and then experience over and over and over your canceling, your setting aside, your mercy.